Real Fun DC. So good you'll eat it up. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Industry Night with me, your host, Nikki Nellis. Uh, so if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Let me give you a little background on who I am and what I do. I've been covering the D.C. Uh, food and wine and hospitality scene for the last 18 years. You may hear me every now and again on WTOP Radio, where I do trend reports and roundups on what's happening in the food scene. Uh, definitely on Foodie and the Beast, the only food and wine variety show that I do with my husband David we've been on air for 13 years uh coming up actually in two weeks uh we've been doing that show every Sunday on 1500 and of course where it all began the list are you on it.com the online e-zine that covers everything happening in the DC food wine and hospitality scene I always like to say we do not sell but we do tell um, so I'm not giving you my opinion, but I am telling you what's happening. Uh, and lastly, I hope you do follow me on social at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Not really Facebook so much because I don't like it, but uh, I do do the beast regardless. Okay, so um, after my bout with COVID, as you know, I discussed it last week. Yes, I'm vaxxed and masked, but still... Uh, David and I contracted the dreaded disease. Uh, we were finally able to leave our house after two weeks of laying super duper low. Uh, and I was able to go out again, which was really great. So I really have to give a shout out to some of the local restaurants that are really doing amazing uh, and delicious work. David and I had not been back to Bucks Fishing and Camping in quite some time. That is an upper uh, sort of Chevy Chase area. Um, James Elefantis and his team really do the classics terrifically. It's one of those neighborhood restaurants that you could go to for a celebration or also just go to because it's delicious. Uh, they have a big steak and a little steak. David gets the big steak, I get the little steak. Not because I'm a girl, but because I can't eat it all and I don't want it to go to waste. Uh, they have an amazing wedge salad, which I'm all about. And of course their chocolate cake for dessert. Um, it sounds simple because it is, but sometimes simple is delicious. And uh, James and the team at Bucks make it work. I also got to stop back at Jane Jane, a good friend, JP, uh, JP Sabate's new cocktail bar. And what I love about Jane Jane is, is that there's a lot of wine bars and there's a lot of bar bars, but there's no real cocktail bars anymore. It was like a trend that kind of passed away. And JP and Ralph Brabham and Drew Portfeld have totally brought it back. They do have snacks though, little noshes, chips and onion dips, saltines and pimento cheese, um, olives and like pickled okra. It's like all the kinds of things you want to sort of pick at while you're uh, downing some delicious cocktails. And then lastly, how can I not talk about the Rammies? Um, what a night. And I just have to say, it's an absolute honor and pleasure uh, that I get asked to participate and present at the annual Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington's Ramy Awards. First of all, to be able to gather with everyone, there was like 2,000 people, and celebrate the industry's suggest, uh, success is, I mean, it's legitimately everything to me. Um, the Ramy Awards have always recognized the exceptional ability and accomplishments of the DC area hospitality community. And given the last 18 months, this uh, this year's award featured 
all new categories and it really spoke to the way that the industry has risen to the occasion so first um major kudos to the entire rmw team kathy hollinger aishi eden julie uh and on and on they just did so much work to make the event everything that it was supposed to be um it's just amazing what they were able to execute, especially a vaccinated, safe, and most importantly, a celebratory event. So, so much mazel to the RMW team, to the deserving nominees and winners. And if you want to see a full list of everybody who won, check out the thelistareyouonit.com. Okay, so on with the show. So Chris Amendola is a chef, and he truly believes that forest to fork dining is the way you should be eating and living. And he is doing that at his forage restaurant in Baltimore. Hyper seasonal local eating really should be how we're all eating. And Chef Chris and I are gonna get down in the dirt and discuss how we're gonna make that happen. But first, a delegation from FIFA uh, and US soccer visited DC last week. Uh, believe it or not, we did have FIFA here like back in the early 90s. And um, that's when soccer was not nearly what it is today. Uh, and so they're talking about coming back. And I'm very excited because I really want to understand what it takes to bring in an international game to the DC area. So with me today is Nicole Kiroga. Um, she is, uh, apparently we know each other from a really long time ago. We are like in each other's former lives, but we're back. Uh, she's the president and CEO of the Greater Washington Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and a member of the DC 2026 Advisory Board. So, hey, Nicole. It's so hey, good to Nikki, you. how are you? I'm great, how are you? <laughs> good, good. Uh, good, so let's talk about this. FIFA was here back in the 90s, right? Like, I think like 1994? That's correct, yep, Okay. So how, so, what does it mean for an international organization like FIFA to come to DC to talk about doing this kind of activation here in the city? Yeah, so we were in 1994 um, with the FIFA World Cup. The city has changed um, and this is huge right now because we've become more international, more global as is all business. Um, and so what does it mean for our city and, and what does it mean for them? Uh, this would be a victory on both sides, to be honest. Um, you know, as the world becomes more global, the nation's capital has become just an epicenter of culture, of power, of decision-making, of leaders. Um, it's, it's a big deal for both parties, quite frankly. And, you know, if and when we get the opportunity to host, uh, this is going to be a game changer for everyone. Well, but so let's talk about what that means. Because first of all, I mean, what did we have in DC in 1994? Like, one stadium. I mean, right. now, how many stadiums do we have, and and how does how does something like FIFA roll out in the city? Like, how many days is it? How where do they play? How many teams is it? I mean, how massive is it now? So it's what we're doing is we're vying for six games to okay. be hosted here in the city. Um, and the great thing is, you're absolutely right. Over the last you know, 20 years, we've expanded our facilities. You know, we've got the Audi Stadium, the St. Elizabeth. I mean, we just have so much growth that will allow them to come and train in different fields. Um, and then of course the FedEx field uh, being the second largest NFL venue, 
uh, will be their place where the games are held. Um, mm -hmm. And our massive and very efficient infrastructure is what is attractive, right? You don't have to go very far. You have everything here in the center. Um, FedEx Field is, you know, accessible. There's parking, there's transportation, there's all of this that uh, the mayor and her administration and the mayors prior to her have really worked on to make sure that our city can offer everything to uh, this kind of activity. Well, and also I would add the accommodations, right? Because 100%. for a Thank while you. there, DC did not have the amount of hotels necessary as these uh, events got larger and larger, right? That's because, right. but like, God, geez, in, just in the last five years, how many hotels have opened in the city? Exactly. And we've had so many new hotels. I mean, and even despite COVID, which is the conversation right now, but still we have everything in place, the hotels, the restaurants, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're a foodie city now. And, um, you know, the attractions and all of these things that we've built, uh, this will make the experience for FIFA, the players, their families, the attendees, uh, second to none. And, and we're ready to, to make sure that people know that. So how many people would come potentially come to town for an event of this size? I, I can't even I, I can't even begin to think of the numbers. I, I really wouldn't even know because um, I mean it, it, this would be so let me let me let me paint the picture for you. Um, let's put FIFA to the side for a second and think okay. about 2026. You know, that's the 250th anniversary of the nation. That's our anniversary, right? And where are you going to go to celebrate July 4th, 2026? Um, the National Mall, uh, right. America's front lawn. I mean, right. I'm absolutely uh, not now that you say that. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> well, safely in 2026, and yes, there'll be crowds, but think about, you know, the glorious right. celebration and, and just, so we've got that, you know, in the National Mall and all of that, and then in comes uh, FIFA, which will obviously be, you know, injected into this celebration, the games, all of this going on. Um, I, I really wouldn't know how, how many people would come, but I will tell you this, um, the amount, just the amount of power that we have to reach out to other countries, Central America, around the world, South America, you know, um, Europe and, and whatnot, because of our embassies, we have 190 embassies. 190 embassies here in Washington, D.C. So think about that communication outbound. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to have a lot of people. I, I, I wish I could estimate the number, but. And how many people are we up against? How many cities are vying for this, for these games? I think they're looking at about 10 cities. Mm -hmm. um, but I can tell you that there are no other cities um, that have all of the elements that we have. Um, you know, I, I do want to kind of mention also, and because I represent the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, I can speak to this, perhaps yeah. not to other, other groups, but certainly to, to the group I represent. I don't have to say Hispanic without telling you uh, the madness and the loyalty and the passion that goes around soccer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and Washington, D.C. is home at the region, I should say, is home to just under a million Hispanics. Um, that's a big deal. And, you know, the Hispanics that live in DC are the highest paid Hispanics, the most educated Hispanics in the nation. And why does that matter? Because together, collectively, we have the means, the ability, the family, the energy, the enthusiasm, and, you know, the, the capability of, of supporting these things. Well, I do appreciate that. But I think, you know, soccer 
has now been injected into uh, everywhere. Well, the United States consciousness, right? I mean, my parents did not grow up with it, but my siblings and I did. And so, and now my kids, like I feel like soccer, it used to be only football, but soccer is now uh, so amazing and such an incredible sport. And I think there was a long time that the U.S. sort of lagged behind the rest of the world in its appreciation of soccer slash football. Um, You know, it's not like Ted Lasso made it happen. I mean, we've known about it for a long time, Um, but it's just taken the game is taken more seriously for both, you know, the male and female counterparts um, with what's happening. So what happens next? What do we wait for? And how, what did you guys do to sort of wine and dine the FIFA and US soccer people? Like where'd you take them? What'd you do? What happened? Right, right. So it was super fun. It was this this past weekend. Um, we uh, welcomed them and, you know, we of course did the press conference and we had leaders of the advisory uh, board similar to what I'm saying, you know, just kind of cheer DC on and give, you know, different um, pieces of information that they may or may not have known. Uh, We took them to FedEx Field, to the National Mall. We took them around to different training sites. We had lunch with them. I mean, we really uh, spent two two days uh, making sure that they saw and felt the power, uh, the regal essence of our city. And, you know, they had a lot of questions and we certainly bombarded them uh, with our enthusiasm, but it was a really um, fun and uh, incredible experience to learn about the delegation and you know what they're looking for. Um, and yeah, we pitched them, and you know it, it was it was a fun it was a fun thing. And and I, and I said to them, I'm sorry, I know that every city you visit, you've got you know all this kind of conversation. Like, do you think that you're going to pick us? Right, right. <laughs> It's a real, it's a real conversation. It gets really behind closed doors. It's just people talking about how can we be most successful. So a lot of passion in the room. (laughs) I bet there is. I mean, it's, listen, I think it would be amazing if this is something that would happen for the city, especially, you know, given the last year and a half, um, what an injector of revenue for uh, the hospitality industry. That's right. In general, you know, I mean, I just, can't think of how much it would mean to the region to have something like this. Well, and so to your point, you know, we're estimating an economic impact of about $500 million. And to your point, uh, 3,500 jobs and the businesses that are visited. Yeah, this is, this is a huge deal for us. Um, You know, we are, we are very confident in the fact that we can give them an overall experience, cohesive, Mm -hmm. um, you know, highbrow, I mean, we, DC, it's infrastructure. I mean, we throw these kinds of global international events all the time. That's what we're sure. here for, right? right? I mean, this is where policy is made. Um, and, you know, with 100 free attractions and 190 embassies and 70, you know, museums. I mean, we, what isn't, what is it that it's we in here? <laughs> right. No, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it's, I mean, it's, listen, I live here. It's my favorite city. Yep, for a absolutely. Um, okay. So what happens next? Oh. And how do how do sort of the lay people keep up to date with the announcement? Or is there any anything the lay person can do? Like, do we need to write letters or send emails? How do we make it happen? Yeah, we right now we don't have a call to action, but we do have a website, uh, dc2026.org, mm-hmm. um, that people can go and and find out updates and information. Um, it's really a fascinating thing. 
Um, so what happens next is that we, we lay low. Obviously, there's conversations, you know, in behind closed doors. Um, we put in the RFP, uh, collecting with all this information, and we wait. Um, we are looking for the end of next, uh, this year, end of this year, or very beginning of next, to hear the news. And okay. then we come together and bring the troops together to make sure that, you know, uh, we put our money where our mouth is. Okay, well, then in a year, we're going to follow up. I'm going to see, hopefully, that something really positive has happened. And what it looks like as DC hopefully prepares for FIFA to come, because that would be insane, right? It would be amazing, something that we'll never forget, historic. It'll, it'll, it'll change the game for all of us and a lot of fun for us and our families, right? Without a doubt. All right, Nicole, thank you so much for joining me today. This is Nikki Nellis. It's Industry Night on Real Fun DC. We'll be back in just a sec. It's Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. So we're back on Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, on Real Fun DC. If I haven't mentioned, um, you can subscribe so you can tune into all the shows and hear all the great things we're talking about. And I absolutely will keep you updated uh, on uh, FIFA and whether or not it actually comes to the DC metro area, because I think that would be really, really cool. Okay, so at the beginning of the show, uh, I talked about Chris uh, Amendola. He is a chef. He has a restaurant out in Baltimore called Foraged, but he really believes in this sort of forest to fork kind of dining, which is not, we're used to like farm to table, but I like this forest idea. So um, Chef Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Nikki. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Okay, so Chris, let's talk a little bit about how you got here. Uh, when did you start cooking? What was like your first experience? What, what brought you to the, what brought you to the back of the house? Oh man, so that goes, that goes way back for me. Um, when I was real young, probably like six, seven, somewhere around there, part of my weekly chores were to, um, back in the days of VCR, you know, sit there and record these cooking shows for uh, my dad while he was at work. Um, and these cooking shows were, it was called Great Chefs of the World and Great Chefs of France. You know, I remember so I'd, those. I remember yeah, those shows. Amazing, amazing, amazing cooking shows. shows. Um, so I would sit there and record those for him, you know, just sitting there watching these chefs and um, you know, I didn't really comprehend what I was watching at the time. Uh, and then later in life, um, you know, I went back and watched these shows and I was like, wow, I was watching, you know, all these pioneers of the food industry, you know, putting mm -hmm. up their signature dishes. Um, so, I mean, I kind of grew up with, with cooking and my family was really into cooking. Um, I started. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up I in Baltimore? No, I grew up in St. Augustine, Florida. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And kind of just been traveling around the East coast. Uh, and landed here in Baltimore. Uh, but I went to culinary school when I was 15 and, and graduated when I was 17 and um, just kind of, you know, wow. worked worked all over. So when you, okay, but so let's talk about that because, you know, the culinary world has trained, like it changes every minute, right? Like absolutely, there are buzzwords, there are marketing terms, you know, there are things that are hot. You know, when I started in the industry, 18 years ago, uh, there was like this big debate versus local versus organic, right? Like organic was the huge marketing terminology. You went into the grocery store and everything was labeled organic. Um, 
but what was more important was local more important was you know organic and now i mean people i think i think there's a lot of better educated client out there i think thanks to the food whether you like it or not the food network has you know really educated people on on food so the people know more maybe than they used to um unlike you and i like i grew up on those same food shows and i i'm not a chef obviously but i love to cook and i started cooking at a very young age and my girlfriend and i threw you know dinner parties for our friends when we were um you know uh 13 years old like so awesome. i appreciate you know where you uh came from but so how did you evolve your taste like what kind of kitchens were you in who inspired you to to get to where you are now oh man so so growing up in florida you know for the first while um i worked at you know little restaurants here and there and moved to orlando and i worked for at a restaurant called uh todd english's blue zoo which you know wasn't anything crazy um back in those days like the whole farm to table thing was just kind of you know non-existent really in Florida just because uh I mean Florida has a lot of farms but I never really was exposed to it and their growing season down there is is uh is weird you know you can't really grow a, hot, a whole lot in the summer months because it's so hot and humid um but after I left Florida I, I moved to Charleston South Carolina and I worked for Sean Brock uh, at McCready's, um, and they had their own farm, uh, for the restaurant. And, uh, that's when I would say everything really changed for me. Um, you know, right away I, you know, started helping on the farm and, you know, to, to watch these, you know, seeds that we planted grow and take care of the plants and then harvest it and take it to the restaurant. Uh, it was, it was just a complete game changer. Um, you know, it, it makes you appreciate the food more you know, when you're, when you're growing it. Um, and that's when I kind of got my first experiences in, in forging. Uh, there was a couple of times, uh, Sean and I were out on the farm working and, you know, we'd wander through the woods and he would show me some things and, and, you know, kind of really piqued my interest on, uh, forging and, uh, forged foods and stuff like that. Well, so can we, for the people who don't know what foraged means, can we sort of discuss that? I, 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 I will tell you, like, 10 years ago on my other show, I had these two young people on who were doing foraging trips around DC. And I mean, I booked them because I was interested, but I was kind of like, what are you foraging around the city? But you know, they were finding ramps or they were finding mushrooms or they were mm. finding other things that I was like, oh, I didn't even know you could eat that. Um, and so it is fascinating. Um, so it is, is that what you started doing? Were you just like out in a field and you were like, oh, check this out? Uh, more or less, you know, um, uh, when I, uh, I, after I left Sean, uh, I moved to DC for a little while. Um, and then after that, I moved to the Berkshires up in Massachusetts and- Okay, wait, so where were you in DC? I helped open uh, the DuPont Hotel um oh, sure. back when it first opened and then mm -hmm. i i had a little stage at mini bar uh for a while um not a bad was, place not a bad place to be yeah back at back when it was what the 12 seats at the little bar and oh my oh, god so it was, did you work with katsuya uh no uh what or was ruben ruben yeah that was his mm -hmm. name yep um 
So that, that I mean, that was really cool to see. Um, and then I ended up moving to Massachusetts um, mm. and being up there is just like, you know, forging heaven between plants and mushrooms. And I ended up meeting the forger for the Mamafuku restaurant group. Um, and he took me out a few times, you know, and, you know, started showing me what to look for and with mushrooms. Um, and it just like really stuck, you know, I'm, I'm actually more into forging mushrooms than, you know, really anything else, but there's definitely a lot of plants and fruits and berries that I go for throughout the year. And how, so when you were putting together your concept, Foraged, how did you, like, you can't just go and pick up a bunch of mushrooms, like it's a restaurant. So how do you, how do you take your passion for foraging and mix it with your business of being a restaurateur, chef slash restaurant owner? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a, that's a really interesting thing here in, here in Baltimore, there you know, the laws on foraging are kind of weird, you know, um, it states, you know, you can't serve any food from a unapproved source, which kind of blows my mind in a sense that the forest is not uh, in, uh, uh, considered a approved source for food. Okay. Like, literally, you can't get any more natural than, you know, pulling food from uh, the woods. But I understand it in a sense that, you know, a lot of these mushrooms are uh, very dangerous to eat. You know, if, right. you pick, if you pick the wrong one, it's going to be a bad mistake. Um, I actually got um, licensed to become a forger here in Maryland uh, through a company in South Carolina. Um, so that kind of... Um, what does that mean that you're licensed to be? Uh, I just can't believe, like, it makes sense that you should be licensed to be a forager. I just, I'm not going to go down like a political ramp, yeah. but like you need a license to forage, but dot, dot, dot. Okay. Yeah. So, so Maryland, um, as a, as a, as a state, uh, reverts to neighboring states, uh, laws for forging. Uh, so, uh, neighboring states, uh, if you're a licensed forger, uh, you're allowed to harvest and sell or serve, you know, what you, what you pick from the woods. Cool. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was, oh my God, it was probably one of the hardest tests I've ever taken in my life. Well, uh, but with good reason, because yeah, yeah, yeah. mushrooms, especially mushrooms, right? There's so many varieties and, and some look like others, like you really have to know your stuff. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a dangerous game, you know, <laughs> um, it's, it's nothing that you should just jump right into and start, you know, picking mushrooms and eating them. That's not right. a... It's not a good idea at all, but um, you know, as, as long as you educate yourself and do your research, and you know, it's it, it's very safe. And how did you go about educating yourself for mushrooms? Um, because because it's so the breadth and depth of mushrooms available and the kinds that are grown in the area. How did what? How did you educate yourself on that? Because it's not uh, like wine. It's not like wine education, you know, where you you know sip and swirl like yeah absolutely. yeah so I mean a lot of it you know from being in the industry for many of years and seeing these wild mushrooms come into restaurants you know you kind of get a sense of you know what they look like but you know then again when you're out in the woods and you see them growing naturally it's just like uh is that the right one you know but mm -hmm. god I've spent countless of hours you know wandering in woods and uh, finding mushrooms and looking them up and doing spore prints and, you know, the whole, you know, just 
educating myself on on what's what and you know making sure that I'm very knowledgeable on on what we're cooking and what we're serving. Well, and so now you've taken a page from uh, your days working with Sean Brock. You at you you have a farm, right? You're, I do. Yep. So can we talk about it? Because it's not like you're not just growing like carrots. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like you're growing some really interesting uh, vegetation, some different kinds of agriculture. So what are you growing there? So uh, it's about it's about three acres of property, um, and the majority of it is wooded. We have about a half acre uh, that's in a field uh, that this year we you know set up a little. Um, conventional farm uh, and about a quarter of an acre of it and, you know, went down that whole road of growing tomatoes and squashes and, uh, you know, all that for, for the summer. But um, a lot of springtime, uh, we kind of went through and uh, transplanted ramps onto the property and uh, ostrich ferns for fiddlehead ferns. Mm. Um, we've inoculated uh, tons of trees with, you know, different varieties of mushrooms. Um, Wait, yeah. how does, how does, so I was in Iceland, uh, I've been fortunate to go to Iceland a couple of times, but one time I went to Iceland with a bunch of chefs from the DC metro area and they took us all out to a, cause they grow their mushrooms. They have like mushroom farms, uh, but, they, cool. but they're, um, the mushroom farms are all indoors cause it's Iceland. So how do you inoculate? to grow specific mushrooms. How does that work? Uh, so there's companies that uh, create plugs uh, that you put into trees or, mm. you know, logs, uh, depending on the mushroom species. Um, and you kind of just drill a little hole into a into a, the, the tree or uh, logs and uh, plug it with these um, mycelium plugs. Yeah. And it you know, eventually we'll take over the tree because a lot of the tree mushrooms actually are parasitic mushrooms. They feed mm -hmm. off of uh, the last little bit of nutrients in the tree to help it decompose and, you know, do its thing. So, um, you know, plug up the trees and, you know, give it some time and hopefully they'll start fruiting. And when you uh, decided to uh, grow things like pawpaws and, and ostrich ferns and mulberries things of that nature so like with your fiddlehead ferns if you cut them do they always grow back like are all these do you know what i mean and same thing with um like pawpaws and i i just don't understand some of it because i'm not a i'm not a gardener so <laughs> how does it work so that it's uh it it comes back every year do you have to plant every year how are you going about it uh, so a lot of the fruit trees, uh, once they're established, you know, you can harvest all the fruit. Uh, all, all that is, is it, uh, the plant trying to uh, reproduce, you know, the right. seeds, you know, so that's, that's never, a, never an issue. But, mm -hmm. you know, with like plants like ramps and fiddlehead ferns and other plant species, you know, it's, it's all about sustainable harvesting. Um, you know, if you go through and pick everything that you see, uh, it's not going to come back for, for next year, right. you know, so you gotta, you gotta let it, let it live its natural life cycle so it can uh, reproduce and come back for next year. Um, and that's kind of been, you know, one of my biggest things through, you know, the past few years um, is how popular ramps have gotten over the years and people just going through and, and, you know, clearing out whole patches of ramps, like, you know, 
obviously that's not going to come back for next year, you know, right. so I had started, um, you know, over the years, just taking transplants out to different areas of, of Maryland, just starting new patches, um, you know, that hopefully that one day they'll, you know, be huge patches that somebody can harvest off of. Because um, ramps do grow like, they're like mint, right? Like they just. Oh, they'll keep, yeah, they'll keep They'll spreading. just keep going. But if you cut them and you yeah. take the bulbs, then that's yep. the end of it. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, it's kind of the same thing with setting up this uh, edible forest, as I like to call it, you know. Um, I'll keep transplanting out into the woods and, and you know, um, hopefully one day just have one central location that I can just, you know, forge through all year long and uh, serve it at the restaurant. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. Serving up thought for food. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. I feel like you talk about ramps. Like ramps are, you know, such a foodie darling. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, the farmers yep. markets, and you know, twenty years ago, maybe you would see it at a high end restaurant, but yeah, now yeah. you know they've trickled down. So I feel like the pawpaw, I especially in the D.C. metro area because it is indigenous to Maryland, right, mm. and Virginia. So Absolutely. I feel like the pawpaw, everybody's trying to make the pawpaw like fetch, like it's supposed to happen. Yeah. So can you explain the pawpaw, what it is and how it's supposed to be eaten and maybe how you're incorporating it in your cuisine? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, pawpaws, you know, actually in season right now. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's very exciting. Uh, pawpaws are uh, an indigenous fruit to like the mid-Atlantic area. Uh, it's kind of like a cross between a banana and a mango, you know, depending on the variety that you get, you know, some can be a little bit more tropical fruit flair, uh, um, tasting or a little bit more banana, you know, just depending on the variety. Um, but here at the restaurant, we, you know, we do all kinds of things with it. We kind of treat it like almost like a banana, you know, uh, we'll do pawpaw breads and, um, mm. pawpaw pudding and, you know, all kinds of different things. What is the texture of a pawpaw? Is it similar to a mango or is it more, because it, it, people it's, think it's like an apple, but it's not because, no, of, it, it's, it's because not. of what it looks like, because of its exterior. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you catch it when it's ripe, uh, it should be really soft, you know, mm -hmm. almost like a really, really soft banana. Um, okay. if, it's, if it's not ripe enough yet, it'll be super starchy and harder like an mm. apple, which would be really awkward to eat, I right. feel like. Um, but, you know, it should have that texture uh, of like a really soft banana. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm trying. I'm going to try to incorporate more pawpaws into my life. So let's talk about, you now have this, I love an edible forest. It makes me think of like Hansel and Gretel. Um, <laughs> so you have this edible forest and you're growing your own stuff and, and you forage. But now we have this restaurant, your restaurant forage. It's been there for five years. How are you incorporating things onto your menu? What are the kinds of things that people come in? Like, what's the experience at your restaurant at this point? You know, it, it really it really changes a lot, you know, throughout the seasons. Um, you know, going into winter, uh, it's going to be a lot of root vegetables and potatoes mm -hmm. and, you know, more of that like homey braised meats kind of stuff, mm -hmm. uh, you know, versus summer, you know, where the menus by default, mostly vegetarian, uh, just because, mm. you know, trying to showcase a lot of the, the summer vegetables and, you know, stuff that you can't get all year long. 
Um, so, I mean, the, the experience really changes week to week, you know, even, even season to season. Do you, uh, but do you, are you looking to be more vegetarian on your menus or is it just, it just happens naturally? Yeah, it just happens naturally. I mean, people for the first, uh, you know, for probably for like the first six months we were open, people thought we were a, a vegetarian restaurant and mm -hmm. they would come in and on the bottom of the menu, we have a whole pig parts and pickles, um, uh, mm. section of the menu where it's like all different parts of the pig face that we cook in different different ways um you know so we're, we're definitely not a vegetarian restaurant um but many years ago when i first moved to baltimore i i realized you know a lot of um places around here didn't really cater to vegetarian and vegan um people and you know kind of again just by default of the way we cook and how we cook um you know we do a lot of vegetarian dishes through through spring and summer um and it's just i think it's i think it's good that we can you know cater to those places and when they feel comfortable going out to a dinner and you know having a meal that they know is 100 percent vegetarian or or vegan you know and not have to worry about anything well i i totally agree with you but i also think there's been more of a shift and you could disagree with me, but I think there's been more of a shift in the last 20 years about how chefs approach alternate ways of dining. You know, if you went into a restaurant 20 years ago and were like, I'm vegan, they'd be like, get out. Or, yeah. if you, you know, like a plate of pasta, or if you said I'm gluten-free, or, you know, I have a dairy allergy. I just think restaurants recognize uh, that they have to be somewhat accommodating to dietary restrictions these days, just because of the, because the clientele is not keeping it in anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. I mean, God, when I first started cooking, it was like, oh, a vegetarian comes in. Oh, right. here's a, oh here's, my here's a plate of green beans. <laughs> you, you know, here's a, here's a salad. Uh, sorry about your luck, you know. But, <laughs> sorry about you know, your choices. Yeah. <laughs> right. But things, you know, things have definitely changed. I mean, God, look at one of the best restaurants in the world in New York, 11 Madison Park. They mm -hmm. just changed to being a completely vegetarian restaurant, you know, which I think is awesome. You know, it's, it's, you know, as far as chefs, it's expanding your knowledge and your creativity and, and, you know, being able to cater to these people. Well, and I also think that uh, carnivores, meat eaters like myself, have learned that I don't need a big hunk and piece of meat on my plate to have a satisfying meal that I can have a little piece of meat or no meat that that vegetables, fruits, plant plant based eating can be satisfying and delicious without uh, a legit meat based protein. Um, Absolutely. It's, right. It's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things I picked up from working at Blue Hill up in New York is, you know. Oh my God, you are such a name dropper. <laughs> Bar, Blue Hill, Sean Brock. Okay, we, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we would do dishes of like, you know, a carrot steak, you know, where it was like this pressed mm -hmm. carrot. And, um, you know, instead of serving meat with it, we would just do a little bit of meat sauce with it, which still gave it that, you know, kind of heaviness of a, like a meat dish and like mm -hmm. still kind of satisfied uh, that meat craving but with very little meat in it you know i think i think that shift in you know feeling like you have to go out and have a you know big steak and potatoes and you know to feel satisfied at a, at a meal is um 
coming to an end almost. Yeah, I know? think it's dwindling. I, I, it's not that there, it's not that there isn't a place for it. But mm. if you had told me 20 years ago that I could sit down at a restaurant and have a completely vegetarian or vegan meal and not leave and go to, you know, like a fast food place and pick up a burger afterwards, I probably wouldn't have believed you because I am such a carnivore, but my, my, my tastes have changed, but I also give credit to people of your ilk, the chefs out there who are showing that this food is delicious and you're, it's all your perspective. Your point of view is raw yeah, and yeah. we're going to show you how, right? A absolutely. And I mean, even, you know, in the, in the midst of summer when it's super hot outside, like, God, there's, there's a, not a worse feeling of, you know, eating a bunch of meat and then walking outside and it's like a hundred degrees and like mm -hmm. sweating, you know, I just want to eat like vegetables and cold food and stuff like that during summer months, you know, um, versus like winter. Uh, sure, I'd love a piece of braised meat or, you know, something super fatty to make you, you know, feel warm inside. But it's not something I think is always, you know, required. Well, now let me ask you, uh, let's pivot for a second into uh, the coronavirus. You have a, how, how many seats in your restaurant? Uh, we're a 26 seat restaurant. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> so how does a restaurant like yours what did you all do? What was it like in Baltimore? How did you figure it out? And, and I, I have so many questions because I assume the supply chain did not affect you as much because you got it grown in, in your little field there, unlike many restaurants who are like, yeah, I can't get what I need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, with us sourcing from local farms and the woods and, you know, it kind of really helped us through that year, you know, um, 2020 was actually a phenomenal mushroom year. It was, it was crazy, you know, tons of rain. So it produced a ton of mushrooms and, you know, so that, I mean, that probably really helped us through um, a big part, you know, we we're. So you will know, you, do you sell the mushrooms or is it just for your restaurant? I, I will if, if, if uh, we have a ton of them, you know, but God, we go through so many mushrooms in this little restaurant. It's, it's insane. Um, and yeah, I mean, 20, 2020 was a crazy year. I thought, you know, as soon as we got shut down, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is it for us. You know, it's like, but man, we have a, we have a great clientele base and I have an amazing team, you know, that really helped pull us through it. And we were just jumping from thing to thing, trying to, you know, stay ahead of the curve and try and produce any revenue that we could, you mm -hmm. know, just to keep our doors open. And now you guys are back to indoor dining. Yes. Yep. Do you have outdoor dining too, or just indoor? Uh, we we have a we have a few tables outside. We're uh, the city gave us um a like three eatery. Yeah, three like a three tables out front. So it's not <laughs> nothing too crazy, but it helps. And so now with uh, us going into the season, so do you do a tasting menu when people come to your restaurant? Can you walk us through the like if I was coming in and you were like Nikki, this is how I would like you to experience my restaurant. Um, if I'm your dream client, how would you walk me through your menu? Um, so we time to time do do tasting menus, you know, if somebody mm -hmm. requests it, it's not something on the menu, but, you know, I kind of have the menu set up in a sense that uh, how I would suggest to eat it, you know, one of my biggest things is I'm kind of 
over the whole everybody gets an appetizer everybody gets an entree and then it's done you know mm -hmm. i i want to go back to the days of you know sharing food and tasting everything you know so you know the middle part of my menu is what i would consider the appetizer section you know but i encourage guests to you know order multiple of you know plates to share and taste everything and you know it, i i feel like it really heightens the experience for the for the diner um, mm -hmm. I know for me personally, if I order an entree, you know, halfway through it, I'm, I'm bored of it. You know, I want to, I want to taste something else. So, you know, that's, that's just how I would eat and how I would, you know, suggest other people, you know, enjoy food and dining out. No, I agree with you. I like to, if I'm in a restaurant, I want to, I really want to try as much as I can. So I yeah. do, I enjoy eating that way personally. Um, I don't know. I feel like there's a little bit of a, I, the problem is, is that for so long people were calling, we're mixing up shareable plates with tapas. And mm -hmm. I never understood why, because tapas are little bites yeah, and yeah. shareable plates are totally different. So I, I totally agree with you. I like to have a bunch of plates on the table and sort of work my way through. Um, what about your wine program? Uh, it's, it's, uh, since we're such a small restaurant, you know, we, we have a pretty decent, uh, wine list, nothing, nothing too crazy. Um, well, I was just sort of curious if you were into natural wines or like this, uh, what about cocktail? Like, do you do cocktails there? Like what's it, how do you take your foraged concept and apply it to your drinking, your beverage program? So that's the hard part. We, we just have a beer and wine, uh, liquor license. Okay. So no cocktails. Yeah. So we can't do cocktails, but, um, I'm kind of partial to old world French wines. Mm -hmm. uh, and I feel like it kind of pairs with uh, our food here a little bit better. So, you know, our, our wine list tends to be a little bit more old world heavy. Um, you know, we do have natural wines and, you know, some of the local wineries on our, on our list, uh, like Black Ankle and Old Westminster Winery. I think they're doing some, some, they're some doing great, great things. Stuff. They oh, are yeah. doing amazing things. Really, they're, both of them. They're doing they're, amazing stuff. They're incredible wines, you yeah. know, for stuff being produced out of Maryland. It's, it's, man, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's really, right. really good. So, yeah, nobody rolls their eyes anymore when you talk about local wine. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. for, for years, Virginia, people would be like, oh, that wine is terrible. And now, I mean, there's some of the best wines in the country coming yeah. out and even in Maryland. I mean, I, I, both those wineries are really producing some great, uh, great drinking. Absolutely. I agree. Okay. So lastly, Chris, just, uh, tell me like what we can look forward to with the winter coming up. What are some of the things that you like are really looking forward to either trying new or cooking again? Like what are some of like your top menu items that we can look forward to? Uh, well, obviously I get, you know, with, with the big season changes, you know, I, I look forward to, you know, obviously like winter squashes and more of like the heavier dishes, you know, going into winter. And, um, one thing that always really excites me about winter is, you know, kind of later in winter when you can't really forge and you kind of really itching to get out to the woods, uh, is we tap black walnut trees for sap, um, to, re to reduce down into syrup. Uh, just like just like a maple tree, um, except it takes way more sap to produce black walnut syrup. But and what is it? What does it? What does it taste like? Uh, it's very similar to to maple syrup, but it has okay. more of like a, a walnut flavor to it. Is it as sweet? Does it have oh, yeah. 
Oh, oh yeah, fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so that's cool. that's one thing I really look forward to, you know, every winter. Um, you know, as the colder months come and no mushrooms are around and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of get bored. <laughs> right. You need something. You need, you need to get your hands out there. I hear Yeah, you. absolutely. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time today. I cannot wait to get into Baltimore and check out what you're doing. Can you tell everybody where you are in Baltimore and how they can find you? Absolutely. We are located in the neighborhood of Hamden uh, on Chestnut Avenue. Um, uh, you can find our social media, uh, Instagram, forge.eatery, uh, Facebook, um, forge.eatery, website, forge.eatery.com. Excellent. Now, one last thing. Do you take people on foraged trips? We do. Um, uh, throughout the season, I tend to do a lot of foraging classes. Um, you know, this year, unfortunately, wasn't the best mushroom year. It was a really dry year. So we didn't really do a whole lot of um, foraging classes this year. But mm -hmm. uh, actually, this past Sunday, I uh, uh, took some Boy Scouts out to teach them about foraging. So that was that was really cool, you know? That is really cool. All right, well, will you keep us posted on those classes? Because that's something I would put in the website. Absolutely. All right, great. Uh, Chef Chris from Forged, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Well, didn't that make you hungry? And didn't that also make you think of other ways you should be eating? Now, I have a kind of green thumb, but not green enough to like grow mushrooms in my backyard. So I think what... Uh, Chef Chris is doing with his edible forest is really cool. So I want to thank you uh, for joining me on Industry Night here on Real Fun DC. Don't forget you can subscribe. Don't forget you should sign up for the list areyouonit.com, the online museum that talks about everything going on in the DC metro area and beyond in the food, wine, and hospitality scene. Uh, and uh, let's keep our ears to the ground about that FIFA coming to the DC area. How fabulous would that be? So once again, uh, I do wanna thank you. I do advise you to get vaccinated if you haven't. Please wear a mask when asked. Absolutely be kind to your servers. There is some real craziness going on out there and people need to remember how to behave when they go to a restaurant uh, and subscribe here. Uh, on Real Fun DC. So this is Nikki Nellis, Industry Night. Have a delicious week. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis, Real Fun DC.